Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with a rather croaky cat Arnie this week. Let's take a look at some of this week's leading scientific breakthroughs. So, starting with what you have for us, Chris. Well, this week scientists have announced that they have managed to sequence the genome of an unborn baby and they have done it using blood from the mother. So this is Jay Schenger, who's a researcher at the University of Washington at Seattle and his colleagues. It's published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. What they did was to take saliva from the proposed father of the baby, I think he was the father, and from the saliva they got cells from the man's mouth which enabled them to decode his DNA. They then went to the mother, they had a blood sample taken from her at 18 and a half weeks of pregnancy. The blood has two components to it, there are the cells that are going around, they're chiefly mum's cells, so if you take the DNA out of those cells then you can sequence the mother, and they did this in painstaking detail, they actually got the two what are called haplotypes, because remember that when we have genetic material in cells there are two sets of chromosomes, one that you get from your father and one from your mother, and when we normally do a genetic fingerprint we just get the full sequence out and we don't actually allot the genetic sequence to one or the other of the two chromosomes, we don't know what order the actual information comes in from the two. In this study they did do that and that was critical because then they go to the mother's plasma, the watery stuff that washes the cells around and in there at about 18 and a half weeks of pregnancy, believe it or not, there is about 13% fetal DNA of the DNA that's in there. So if you take that out and you then sequence that, 13.5% of the time you're reading the baby's genetic material from cells from the baby that have broken off from the placenta and started to go round in the mother's bloodstream and then splurged out their own DNA. And what they were able to do, because they knew the father's genome and they knew the mother's genome, any differences had to be attributable to the baby because they could work out what order the baby's genes were lining up in from the two parents and they were even able to predict what mutations the baby had got de novo. In other words, new mutations that were changes to its genome that either parent didn't have. In fact, they predicted there would be 39 new genetic changes in this baby. They then waited for the baby to be born, took a sample of blood from the umbilical cord when it popped out, and then resequenced that and compared that with their genome sequence from the mother's blood and they got it right to within 98% accuracy. In fact they missed a few of the mutations, there were 44 not 39 but they were pretty much all the way there. So an absolutely amazing achievement and I think what's really interesting here, they do point out that it's not practical to do this because it's so much work. You couldn't do this at this stage for just one person for every pregnancy. But if you could, and in the future you will be able to, it has enormous clinical value. But the really amazing thing to me, I asked Jay Shenger when I phoned him up and I said to him, you know, what did you spend on this? And he said, well, it was 50,000 US dollars. And you think that 10 years ago, the Human Genome Project consumed millions of pounds or dollars to achieve what these guys did, as he, as he put it, a graduate student project. That absolutely blows my tiny mind, that story. It really does. Um, we have another story about pregnancy here. Now, uh, never mind wearing unusual clothes or talking in incomprehensible slang, the feeling that your own child may be foreign to you starts much younger than the teenage years. In fact, it starts right back in the womb. Now, because a developing fetus is made of cells bearing proteins made from genes from both mum and dad, as we've heard, it should be recognised as a foreign invader by the mother's immune system 
and destroyed. Now, the fact that it isn't has been a complete mystery to developmental biologists for many decades. But now, new results in the journal Science from Adrian Adrian Erlbacher and his team at the New York University School of Medicine have finally revealed how a fetus is protected from this potential deadly attack. Their findings could not only help to explain what happens when sub-pregnancies fail, but could even be extended to improving organ transplants or treating a much more undesirable growth, namely cancer. Okay, well, let's start with the simple stuff first. So what actually happens when the immune system recognises something as foreign? So normally when our body detects something foreign like an organ transplant, it starts an inflammatory reaction around the invader. So your tissues produce signalling molecules called chemokines and these chemokines attract deadly immune cells called T-cells which set about attacking and destroying this foreign tissue. And this is why it's so important that transplant patients take drugs to suppress their immune system. Obviously pregnant women don't normally need to take immune suppressing drugs. They're just pregnant. So what's going on? Well, to find out why a mother's body doesn't label her baby as foreign, the scientists turned their attention to a structure called the decidua. And this is a specialised barrier tissue that encapsulates both the developing fetus and the placenta. And they were using mice as a model system. And the researchers discovered that the chemokine genes had been switched off in the decidua using a kind of chemical tagging known as epigenetic modifications. So these killer T-cells, there were no chemokines and the killer T-cells weren't being recruited there. So this immunological dead zone basically means that the fetus is protected from immune attack. And we think the immune system might be involved in certain things like miscarriage. So will this help people who suffer recurrent miscarriages? Absolutely. Well, at the moment, this research has only been done in mice. So the scientists do need to confirm whether the same gene silencing is at work in humans. But if it is, as you say, there could be really big implications for our understanding of why some pregnancies do fail, why some women give birth prematurely, or also why some suffer complications like diseases such as preeclampsia. Super. Kat, thank you very much. Well, also this week, scientists at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine have developed a new tool that can help them to identify the parts of Africa that are most likely to be susceptible to epidemics of malaria. Knowing where these places are means that efforts to prevent malaria can be concentrated on just these disease hotspots, which will save money and thousands of lives. Matt Cairns led this study and he's with us now. Hello, Matt. Hello, Chris. So, what, first of all, is the scale of the malaria problem in Africa that you're dealing with? Uh, so, malaria is one of the biggest killers in Africa, particularly in, in pregnant women and children under five years of age. Current estimates from the World Health Organization suggest 170 million malaria cases and perhaps 600,000 deaths in Africa each year. So, it's a really big problem. So, given that uh, burden of disease, how could we intervene in order to try to reduce those numbers? So what we looked at was a new strategy called Seasonal Malaria Chemo Prevention, or SMC, which involves giving all children under the age of five a three-day course of anti-malarial drugs once per month during the rainy season. And where this approach has been used, it's worked very well and prevented around eight out of every ten malaria cases. Importantly, a similar number of the severe malaria cases where children actually need to be admitted to hospital. But to move from research to the real world, we need to know how widely this can be used. So in this study, our aim was to identify the areas of Africa where this approach could be useful by identifying the parts of Africa where most of the malaria cases occur within a few months of the year and so understand where this approach of giving monthly courses of drugs for three or four months would be most effective. Because it's critical that you know where there is a fairly constrained disease 
activity sort of zone because then you, it means you can put your resources in there in an efficient way. If it's spread out fairly diffusely over a very large area with a, a not a very tight peak of, of disease activity, it must be much harder to intervene. Exactly. And so the problem we're trying to overcome is that for large parts of Africa, we don't actually have reliable information on the pattern of malaria over the course of the year. Um, but we found that, that the areas where most malaria cases occur within a few months tend to have quite a distinctive rainfall pattern. And in these places, most of the annual rainfall actually falls within two or three months. And that's because the mosquitoes that transmit malaria rely on standing water to breed. So in areas where there is a short rainy season followed by a long dry season, mosquitoes are only found in, in large numbers for a few months. So we realised that we could use rainfall to, to understand what the pattern of malaria cases over the year would be like in areas where we didn't actually have that information. And we were then able to use information on rainfall, uh, which, which is available for, for all of Africa, to, to map the areas where the pattern of malaria cases is likely to be suitable for this seasonal uh, drug-based prevention. What about the problem of resistance, though? Because that's a major issue with antimalarials, isn't it? Yeah, so in the areas where this is currently going to be used, there, there's very little resistance to the two drugs um, that, that, that are planned to, to be used, which is sulfadoxin pyrimethamine combined with amadioquine. And in, in most of West Africa, the, the, those drugs remain very effective. Uh, so that's, that's why those drugs uh, have been chosen to, to use in this strategy. Based on this analysis, what area is amenable to this kind of intervention where you go in with the drugs and therefore how many people could it impact? How many malaria cases and therefore lives could you prevent being lost? We, we identified two areas uh, of Africa. First of all, the Sahel and Sub-Sahel, which is a wide belt that extends from, from Gambia and Senegal in West Africa uh, all the way across to parts of Sudan in, in the east. Uh, and, and that belt actually contains some of the areas with the highest number of malaria cases in all of Africa. Uh, and secondly, according to the rainfall patterns, there's, there's another uh, quite large area of southern and eastern Africa that might be suited to this approach. Uh, and that was not widely recognised before we conducted our research uh, and is something we plan to look at in, in more detail. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the effectiveness, uh, we identified that about 40 million children live in areas where this could be appropriate. About 25 million of those in, in the Sahel and Sub-Sahel belt where the malaria burden is very high indeed. And in terms of the actual impact, we tried to be realistic rather than optimistic about the number of cases and deaths that, that would be prevented. So, for example, we assumed that if the drugs were available, not every child would necessarily receive the medication every month. And we also tried to err on the side of caution regarding the effectiveness of the drugs. But even with our cautious approach, we still found that you might be able to prevent 10 million cases of malaria and 50,000 deaths every year. So it's, it's really exciting, the, the potential impact of, of this new approach. Can poor countries afford this intervention strategy, though? Yes, so, so the, the drugs themselves are not expensive. Uh, and actually, to, to treat a child um, for three or four courses over the year would cost uh, something in the order of one and a half to two US dollars. So, so it's not expensive. Um, the countries may uh, need some support to, to begin doing this from the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria, or the US President's Malaria Initiative. But the costs involved are not particularly large. And certainly, when compared with other malaria control tools, this is a reasonable value thing to do. And lastly, Matt, it's all very well if we keep shoveling the money in to help these people. But what about if there's another economic downturn, things get even tighter and people say we can't afford to keep supporting this, so they don't put the money in. What then happens to the people who have had their malaria prevented at a young age by your strategy and they then turn into adults with malaria? Is there not a danger they could get worse disease and the mortality rate could rebound and be even higher? 
Um, so, so that's something that's been looked at carefully in, in the studies that, that have happened to date, um, although that is something that, that does obviously need to, we need to continuous monitoring because m most of the research studies have been over the space of uh, at most three or four years. So, so there, is, there is a concern that if this is done over a very long period, it, it could be problematic. Um, but those concerns were also raised for insecticide-treated nets because it's really a, a similar idea that you'd be reducing the amount of exposure that, that children have had. Um, and, and quite long-term follow-up of, of trials of insecticide-treated nets showed that actually, um, although there may be a slight uh, increase in, in the malaria that adults or older children experience, it's massively outweighed by the amount of by the malaria you prevent in childhood. So its cost-benefit still comes down in favour of, of using these preventive approaches. Matt, we must leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Matt Cairns. He is from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and you can read more about that work if you'd like to follow it up in the journal Nature Communications. Well, also this week, scientists think that they have discovered the smoking gun behind arterial disease. For a long time, we've been taught in medical schools and elsewhere that when an artery becomes damaged by smoking or lifestyle or diabetes, then what actually happens is that the injury to the blood vessel triggers the muscle in the coat of the artery to divide and the cells take up more space and this makes a little bulge that slowly encroaches on the inside lumen of the blood vessel, blocking it off. But there's a paper that's been published this week. It's in the, the journal Nature Communications. It's by Zhen Yu Tang, who's a researcher at the University of California at Berkeley. And what he and his colleagues did was to take some samples of arteries and also jugular vein, actually, and they stained the arterial wall for markers of muscle cells. And what's interesting is that in the muscle layer in the vessel wall, there are cells lurking in there that don't stain up with any markers for muscle. And they wondered what these cells were, so they investigated further, and they have chemical hallmarks of being some kind of stem cell. In fact, they've dubbed them the multipotent vascular stem cell because in tests these cells are capable of producing a whole raft of different tissues, including cartilage-producing cells and even bone-producing cells. So they wondered what role they might actually be playing in the process of vascular injury and atherosclerosis. So in an intriguing series of experiments, they do things like culturing these cells in the dish and also injuring blood vessels in experimental animals and showing that what actually happens is it's not the muscle cells that start to divide and respond to the injury. It's these stem cells, and they divide, and then they turn into cells that resemble muscle cells, which is why researchers thought that it was the muscle that was doing it initially. But because we've been barking up this incorrect cellular tree, the discovery of these new stem cells means that we may now be able to unlock new avenues to try to control or combat the process of arterial disease and maybe come at it from a new direction and with a new raft of drugs to prevent the process. Cat. And now with a look at some of the other stories that have been making scientific headlines this week, including a way to help dyslexics to read more easily, here's Mira Senthillingham with our Naked Scientists Newsflash. A protein found in milk can keep obesity and diabetes at bay, as well as improve physical endurance. When given to mice on a high-fat diet, the protein nicotinamide riboside was found to prevent weight gain and type 2 diabetes by entering cells and increasing the activity of mitochondria, the powerhouses of the cell, to improve metabolism. The team hoped the protein could be used as a supplement, but as it's found in a range of foods as well as milk, including bread and beer, a varied diet holds the key until then. Johan Oax from the École Polytechnique de Fédérale led the work published in Science. Many age-related diseases going from obesity, diabetes, 
to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease are linked with defective mitochondria. Here we provide a natural product which we consume every day, which helps to keep this mitochondria in better shape. There are products out there which we can consume so we're more protected against the decline with aging. Mobile phones are being used to improve water supplies in rural Africa, according to research in the Journal of Hydroinformatics. Patrick Thompson from the University of Oxford developed smart water pumps containing data transmitters that send out text messages when a pump breaks down. The technology uses the movement of a pump's handle to estimate its water flow, with data sent back to a central office when this flow is impaired to arrange for its repair. 70 of these pumps are being introduced in Kenya later this year. Across sub-Saharan Africa, it's estimated that a third of all hand pumps at any one time are non-functioning. When these pumps break, often the people who are qualified and equipped to repair them do not know that they've broken. So the idea of this system is that as soon as a pump is, is no longer doing its job, not working properly, those people who have the skills and knowledge to repair them know straight away that the downtimes for pumps can be shortened and the communities can have access to fresh water. Increasing the spacing between letters significantly improves the reading skills of people with dyslexia. Writing in the journal PNAS, Marco Zorzi from the University of Padua asked 94 French and Italian children with dyslexia to read pieces of text with both standard and double-spaced wording and found that the widened spacing doubled the accuracy of their reading and increased their reading speed by 20%. The team suggests the spacing overcomes the problem of crowding, where letters are closely surrounded by other letters, making them harder to identify. These findings show that visual attentional factors may play a, a really important role in dyslexia in addition to problems related to a phonological domain. This manipulation of letter spacing is uh, easy to implement in principle, we don't see why publishers might not print out books with wider spacing. The era of digital printing on demand that would be very easy and feasible to do. And finally, the personality of a Gordian finch can be predicted by the colour of its head. Three aspects of personality were measured in 40 of these endangered Australian birds in the wild. Risk-taking, aggression and boldness. By exposing them to unfamiliar objects silhouettes of predator birds and limited access to food. The team, led by Claudia Metke-Hoffman from Liverpool John Moores University, found that finches with redheads tended to show more aggression to access food, whilst those with blackheads were more bold and risk-taking. The red-headed birds, they may have a disadvantage because they are more conspicuous with a red head, so they suffer by higher predation. So it's good for them to be less exploitative the black-headed birds, in contrast, are they are subordinate, but because they are less conspicuous, they can take greater risk. And this combination can have important implications for conservation to find the optimal group composition, which would give the species the optimal combination to survive in the wild. And that work was published this week in the journal Animal Behaviour. Sadly, I doubt if that translates to uh, to human redheads or not. That was Mira Senthilingham with our Naked Scientist News Flash. And transcripts and all the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.